Father, we thank you uh, once again for, for all that we've seen in, throughout this series from Luke's Gospel. We thank you for the certainty that you have been working in us of Jesus and all that he accomplished. And this morning we pray that you would be at work once again in all of our hearts, all of our lives, that we would see Jesus clearly and respond to him rightly for his glory. Amen. Well, last week we saw Simon Peter coming face to face with the Lord Jesus and the reality of who he is. That miraculous catch of fish proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus was God. I mean, it was quite the miraculous catch, wasn't it? So many fish at the wrong time of day, so many fish, it was almost dragging two boats down. Who would have such mastery over nature? other than God's. And recognizing that, Simon Peter, recognizing that here is Jesus in his boat with him, fear grabs hold of him. And he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. But the important thing we saw last week, the one we want to highlight and stress again this morning, is that being sinful doesn't exclude anyone from a relationship with Jesus. Being sinful doesn't exclude anyone from a relationship with Jesus. Do you remember Peter, Simon Peter said, depart from me. Jesus says, don't be afraid, follow me. Being a sinner doesn't exclude anyone from a relationship with Jesus. But Luke can kind of imagine perhaps Theophilus and maybe us with some questions about that. So perhaps the more religiously minded among us would kind of say, well, why not? Right, Everything we see in the Bible, both Testaments, old and new, show God to be holy, morally perfect, separate from everything else. And in his blazing holiness, he cannot bear the presence of sin. And so Simon, we said last week, was right to kind of fear and recognize his unworthiness before Jesus. In one sense... Being sinful should, and in a sense does, exclude from relationship. Others kind of think of God's holiness and think, well, what, does that prevent a relationship with someone like me? You know, they, they look at themselves and wonder, even me, as sinful as I am? Well, Luke this morning presents for us three encounters that Jesus has with three different people that prove that being sinful does not prevent a relationship with Jesus. And in fact, recognizing that you are sinful is required for a relationship with Jesus. And equally, yes, sin, being sinful, is a problem. It is a problem that does need to be dealt with. But again, these three encounters show that Jesus does just that. Think of it like this, okay? If you have a problem and you come to me for help, I've got to be, whatever the problem is, you come to me, I've got to be two things in order to be able to help you. Firstly, I've got to be willing. Secondly, I've got to be able. So as a completely random example, say you come to me after service and say, look, Rich, uh, for work, I've got this really important clients coming in to England. I've got to pick them up from Heathrow Airport at 5 a.m. tomorrow, uh, but they only speak German. Can you help me? 
Well, in that scenario, my willingness is probably questionable. 5 a.m. tomorrow morning, but my ability is beyond question. I don't speak a word of German. I couldn't help. In that situation, I'd both need to be willing to get up at 5 a.m. to go there, and I'd need to be able to speak German. I'd need to be help to help you. And this problem of sin with Jesus, well, that, those same things remain. Is he willing? Is he able? Is he willing? Is he able? That's what we're going to see. Our first encounter, the first person, our first point is that Jesus is willing to cleanse. Jesus is willing to cleanse. So first off, we meet this man in Luke chapter 5, verse 12, a man who has leprosy. And in fact, he is full of leprosy. Luke, the doctor, kind of reports his condition. It's a bad case. Now, this man might have rec- uh, must have recognized or must have heard something about Jesus. And he recognizes, in fact, Jesus' ability. You see that in verse 12. And when he saw Jesus, this man, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Right? He, he understands that Jesus can make him clean. The question is, is Jesus willing to make him clean? Now, we all answer, of course. Right? If you know anything of your Bible, anything of the of course Jesus is willing. But back then, that, for that man and for those onlookers, the answer might not have been quite so clear. So this man is full of leprosy. Now, that leprosy is a kind of word, a catch-all for all manner of skin diseases, including leprosy. And they were terrible conditions. Some were treatable, but many were not. But even perhaps worse than the illness itself were the consequences. Having leprosy, having those skin diseases, made you unclean. Spiritually, ceremonially, socially unclean. So this man was already breaking the rules by coming to Jesus. Did you see? He says while he was in one of the cities. So one of the things about lepers is that they weren't allowed in the cities. They had to live outside because they didn't want them coming in to pass on that sickness to others. And in fact, the Old Testament lays out kind of how um, lepers, people with leprosy should behave. Uh, and we can read about it. And one thing they had to do is as they were walking about, if anyone came near, they would say, unclean, unclean. You imagine that, walking into Sainsbury's? Unclean, unclean. It's kind of comical until you think, imagine that was you. Imagine you had to do that. Someone came close to you, you had to back away and say, unclean, unclean. And being unclean meant that they couldn't take part in any of the religious life. They were right on the outskirts. They were to be avoided at all costs. But hearing that Jesus is nearby, this man can't help but give it a try. He comes to him and he falls on his face. And wonderfully, seeing the man's humility and his faith in verse 13 We read, and Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus does the unthinkable. Jesus could have healed at a word, right? We we read that he does that many times. He could, but he doesn't. He reaches down and touches this man. Now, I don't know how you found kind of lockdown life, and, 
And maybe there's that time after what after a year or whatever it was, when we said, look, we can you can hug your your friend your relatives. Remember that first hug with a loved one? That touch? Well, this leper hadn't perhaps been had that human contact for years. Jesus reaches down and touches him. It's an incredible display of Jesus' compassion. But I, even more than that, it is an incredible display of Jesus' power and authority. Because normally speaking, if you were to touch a leper, then you yourself would become unclean. But such is Jesus' holy authority that not only does he not become unclean, but actually he cleanses this leper. Now, all of the miracles that Jesus performed have a greater significance than just what happens to that individual there and then. They're all little pictures for us. Here, with this man with leprosy, this illness meant he was impure. He was separate from the people and excluded from God's presence, excluded from a religious life of the Jews. And leprosy is, in one sense, a picture of sin. Sin, that heart attitude of rebellion against God that works itself out in so many ways, that is a corrupting illness. It's a thing that makes us unclean in God's sight. And yet here Jesus shows his willingness to draw near to the unclean, to cleanse the unclean. And in fact, that willingness that Jesus displayed here took him all, in fact, all the way to the cross. Where that sin, that uncleanness, Jesus took upon himself. He, he, he took upon himself that sin. In fact, he became sin. He became unclean and suffered the curse, suffered the forsakenness of God on behalf of his people. Jesus is willing we see in a snapshot here in this man's life, we see fully at the cross. Jesus is willing. But I think sometimes we can doubt that. It's perhaps you, you kind of thought as well, is he willing even for like a nobody like me? Like no, nobody in, in, in the world pays any attention to me. Why on earth would Jesus? Well, remember, this is a leper right on the outskirts of society. Or perhaps you're wondering, is it, well, like, even me? Like, even me? Even me after I've done that? Even me after I've done that again? You know, even me who's ignored Jesus my whole life. Even me who's worshipped other false gods, be it of another religion or be it of money or be it of self. Even me who says I'm a Christian has done that yet again. Well, when we're doubting Jesus' willingness, I think often the problem is that we're focusing too much on ourselves and not on him. You see, do you sometimes fear that your weakness is greater than Jesus' willingness? Do you think your weakness is greater than Jesus' willingness? We need to look to Jesus. We need to, and a kind of game question is, what do you see in the life of Jesus in the Gospels that would make you think that Jesus wasn't willing? And we see here so wonderfully clearly with this man with leprosy, Jesus' wonderful willingness. 
that if, you're, if we're not purified from sin, it isn't because Jesus isn't willing, it's because you haven't come to him in faith. Having cleansed the man, Jesus tells this man, look, go to the priests, present the sacrifices that, again, the Old Testament lays out, but, but don't tell anyone. But whether it's from his word or whether it's from the priests who've, who've heard and then tell others, quite the crowds gather, and once again, Jesus has to retreat. So firstly, Jesus willing to cleanse. Our secondly, secondly, and in our second encounter, Jesus is able to forgive sins. There's the second uh, encounter begins with quite the religious assembly. You see it down there in verse 17. We, we have um, the Pharisees gathering. The Pharisees, uh, the word Pharisees probably comes from a word that kind of translated as separate ones. Uh, and their, their job, their goal was to keep the nation faithful to God. And they did so by kind of creating a fence around the law, by a whole load of rules so that you couldn't get close to breaking the law. And then you had the teachers of the law. They were the kind of the experts who would um, uh, study religious questions. And you see, they come from all over the place. Every village of Galilee and Judea, even from Jerusalem, right, they've come a long way to case out Jesus. And while they are there listening to Jesus' teaching, we have a group of friends. And one of this group of friends was paralyzed. Now, to be paralyzed in our day is, is hard enough, right? But back in those days, it was significantly more difficult. No NHS, no welfare state. They would have existed by living on the kindness uh, of friends and strangers. And so when these friends, they, they hear about Jesus, they're like, we've got to get our friend to Jesus, and so they go, they approach the house, but there are so many people that they, they kind of can't get in, but they don't give up. It really is a remarkable scene, as Ray read it. Imagine you're there, you're there in the room, kind of you're listening to Jesus, and all of a sudden you just hear some scratching. And then this little kind of chink of lights kind of, kind of comes in from the ceiling, and then that hole gets bigger, and you're at this stage, you wonder what on earth is going on. And that hole gets, and then this man gets lowered down. And finally, these friends have managed to get their friend here in front of Jesus. And then things take a surprising turn. What the friend's hoping for, what is kind of everyone expecting? Everyone's expecting to say to Jesus, say, look, you are healed. But instead, verse 20, and when he, Jesus, saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And I imagine kind of shocked silence followed that as they kind of said, did he, what did he just say? Your sins are forgiven you? In verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began questioning, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Top marks for theological accuracy, right? They're spot on there. It would be blasphemous for anyone to say they could forgive sins other than God. Because only the person who's been sinned against can forgive, forgive you, right? So imagine I uh, kind of came up to your house or your flat this morning and I chucked a brick in through the window. And as you came out to kind of say, what have you done? Mark turned up. And Mark walked along the street and said, Rich, don't worry, I forgive you. You'd have no right to do that. It's not his window I smash, it's yours. Only the person who's sinned against has the ability to forgive. And so these guys, they're, they're spot on. And Jesus, by saying this, he's elevating the stakes as to who he is. Either he is God, 
or he is a blasphemer. You've got to be one of the two. The question is, is does Jesus have the authority to do that? Is he able to forgive sins? Is he able here and now on earth to pronounce God's judgment upon that person? Well, Jesus knows what they're thinking. And so he asks a question in verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. Well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you, right? Because there's no visible sign. I can say your sins are forgiven, but you can't, can't see anything there. Whereas if I had to say, rise up and walk, and then you didn't, well, it showed that my words were hollow. And so, verse 24, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. This is the moment of truth. And as much as I want to try and build the tension, there was no tension. But you see verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things. Jesus healed the man. He showed he had the authority, the ability, the power to do that, which shows that he is able has the authority to forgive sins too. Jesus is able to forgive sins. And, and again, I wonder whether sometimes we might doubt that. Now, there may be some here, there may be some watching at home who have never understood that Jesus is God. They've never understood that he is able to deal with your biggest problem, which is sin. And if that is you, well, let's see here, this is Jesus. He is able to deal with your biggest problem, sin. He's able to forgive. Now, others among us, we would never kind of say it so obviously as that, like, of course Jesus isn't able to forgive sins. We would we'd never say that. But I wonder whether sometimes subtly we might feel that, we might act as though that wasn't the case. Because isn't that what's going on when we feel like we need to earn our way into God's good books? Or we need to keep ourselves in God's good books. When we're feeling like that, what we're saying is that, Jesus, you're, you're not able to save. Or at least what you've done needs a bit of topping up, a bit of help. Jesus is able to forgive sins. And ultimately, Jesus is able to forgive sins once again because at the end of his life, he died for sins. That is why he was able uh, not just to say it but also to do it because he would later to actually go and pay for those sins of his people. Jesus is willing. Jesus is able. And those two things come together so wonderfully in this third encounter. So our final third point is Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. Verse 27, after this he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Once again, this incredible authority that Jesus had, come follow me and up he gets. 
And in his joy, Levi throws this big party, big celebration for all of his tax collector friends. But you see, once again, the Pharisees, who before were questioning, have now kind of stepped up their opposition to Jesus a little bit. So verse 30, And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. I wonder whether they're a bit afraid to go to Jesus. And he grumbled to the disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? In those days... And still, in parts of our world today, to to, to eat, to share a meal with someone was a sign of fellowship, a sign of acceptance. And the the Pharisees say, look, why would Jesus, why would you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, again, it's easy to view the um, the villains a bit like kind of, uh, the the Pharisees as kind of pantomime villains, a boo, hiss, whenever they turn up. Uh, But actually, remember again, their job was to try and keep the people holy. That was what they were trying to do. And so here is Jesus, and even if they didn't believe it, here is Jesus who's claiming to be this kind of holy man, and here he is relating, accepting, welcoming tax collectors and and sinners. They don't get it. In fact, they're offended by it. They, They grumbled about it. Well, why? And again, remember, who were these people? So remember, in those days, um, God's people were occupied by the Romans. And the Romans, like any government does, were taxing the people. And then the the tax collectors were Jewish people who were to collect money from their countrymen and then give it to the Romans. But on top of that, well, they kind of had a kind of basically a free market to to kind of charge whatever they liked. So you you kind of top it up. So the tax is 20%, well, I'll charge 30%. 10% 10% for me, 20% for the Romans, everyone's a winner. And then what could you do about it? You couldn't complain, right? You get two big, burly Roman soldiers knocking on your door. And, and so these, the, these tax collectors were the thieves. They were collaborators, right? They were collaborating with the um, opposing forces. They were unclean because of their engagement with the Romans. They had complete disregard for God and for his people, now, even as I explain that, I, I still do think it's kind of quite hard for us to, to understand the depth of feeling that would have been had for them. But I, I was watching um, a TV program, Band of Brothers, that follows an uh, American company through World War II. Um, and it's very good TV. But towards the end, they come across Eindhoven, which has been, uh, the, the Nazis have left. And it's quite a shocking scene. Is, is what's happening is, is women of the town who have... Um, been fraternising with German soldiers, uh, basically being pulled out, kind of stripped, shaved. It's, it's shocking to see. But that was the kind of depth of feeling because they, they've been associating, they've been helping the enemy. And that was, would have been the tax collectors. If the Romans left town tomorrow, the tax collectors would have been out there. They were the ones being mocked, beaten, humiliated. But I think when we kind of can kind of feel feel that a little bit more about the tax collectors. We understand the Pharisees' shock. What is Jesus doing with them? But being a sinner doesn't exclude anyone from a relationship with Jesus. Even tax collectors, even sinners, and we don't know kind of what their sins were, but these were people who were so bad they were known as sinners. But Jesus is willing and able to deal even with their sins. And in fact, 
recognizing and admitting that, someone is, that they are sinful is required, in fact, to have a relationship with Jesus. So Jesus uses this imagery of a doctor here in verse 31. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came to call and to save those who recognize that they are sick. People like Levi, to recognize that they are sin sick. His tax collector friends and those other sinners are exactly the kind of people that Jesus came to save. Now, Jesus isn't saying here that the Pharisees actually are righteous, that they actually are good enough for God, but that they consider themselves to be. And so they don't see their need of a doctor. They don't see their need of Jesus. Jesus says, look, I've not come for people who think they are good enough. I've come for people who know that they're not. Again, maybe you feel like you're too far gone that uh, you're, you're too bad, that your history is too checkered. But here, see these things. See Levi, a tax collector, and those other sinners. The paralyzed man, a leper. See who Jesus came for. Those right on the edge of society. The downcast, the despised, the proudly rebellious. Jesus came to save the sin sick, and the first step is realizing that you are. But it's also important to see that Jesus takes the issue of sin seriously. Right? There is no compromise to his holiness with sinners. So he said, most importantly and foundationally, Jesus came to deal with the problem of sin. He went to the cross to die and to pay for those sins. But equally, he calls sinners, did you notice, to repentance. He calls sinners to, to turn from their old way of life, to change. So Jesus doesn't say, look, come, on, come follow me and bring your sins along for the ride. No, he says, follow me and leave your old ways behind. I think the image of, of a doctor is a really helpful one in, in understanding what it means to repent. Because someone goes to a doctor when they realize they've got a problem. And they recognize that a doctor can help. And they listen to what the doctor says and then act upon it. And so with Jesus. Who goes to Jesus? It's those who recognize that they have a problem. It's they, they go to him, they recognize that Jesus can help. They listen to what he says and they act upon it. That's what it means to repent. But also, I think the Pharisees give us a bit of a warning. You see, it's possible to agree that Jesus is willing and able to save, uh, to, to, um, save sinners. But to assume that you are the kind of, right kind of person that Jesus was want, would want to hang out with. To assume that actually, yes, I'm exactly the person that Jesus would come to save. I hear the warning of the Pharisees. It is not uh, the righteous who think they're good enough for God, but sinners who he's come to call for repentance. 
See, being sinful doesn't exclude anyone from a relationship with Jesus. And in fact, recognizing that you're sinful is the starting point of any relationship with him. And it doesn't, and it's only because Jesus is willing and able to deal with sins that that, that sin isn't a barrier. If, if you've come to, to see that, you come to realize that, perhaps today for the first time, please do come and speak to me afterwards or get in touch if you're at home. I'd love to keep, continue to th- talk to you about what it means to, have, uh, to trust in Jesus and to repent. It, if you've known that before, if you've known that for many, many years, be certain. That is why Luke is writing to us. Be certain that Jesus is willing and able to deal with sins. And I couldn't have picked a better, better point to end our, our little series in Luke than resting here. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we praise you that you are willing, compassionate. You're willing to relate to and uh, willing to cleanse sinners. Thank you that you are able, you have the authority to do so. We thank you that you went to the cross to pay for the sins of your people. We thank you that you share that so clearly in the, in the calling of Levi and, and you've shown it in so many lives today. Lord Jesus, pray that we would recognise that about you and we would have certainty about that as well. And Father, please would you help us, work in us. If we haven't yet seen Jesus, please do show us him who he really is and do help us to be walking lives of daily repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.